Why haven't you seen the gold Why haven't you seen Silence of the Lambs? Hello and welcome to the return of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. Uh, I am Bubba Wheat, as always, from Flights, Tights, and Movie Nights, and it's good to be back. Uh, hopefully uh, this will go smoothly, because it's uh, it's been a couple months now, but I am ready to get to talking about a couple movies. And today I have with me David Babbitt from 24 Panels. How are you doing today? Oh, very good, and thank you very much for having me on. Or I should say 24 Panels per second. Um and why don't you go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about uh, that show? Uh, yes, uh, like I said, uh, we've been uh, 24 panels per second uh, as we dub it the podcast about comic books on film. It's a show we've been, me, I do along with uh, Drew Jeffries uh, that we started about four years ago. We'll be going into our fifth year uh, uh, early in 20, uh, 2016. Uh, and our general approach is to just discuss the process of adapting comic books on film. And we sort of look at pretty much any genre, any comic, uh, and any film. And ostensibly, we try to focus upon, you know, sort of a focus on how we, the, the sort of medium translate into a completely different medium. Um, that said, it, we are notorious for long tangents and uh, general uh, strangeness uh, from time to time is <laughs> what we do on our show. And uh, certainly it's grown... Uh, I will also note a uh, very epic length podcast as well. Uh, it's rare that a typical one doesn't at least end up being two hours. Uh, and you can find those on the 24th of uh, every month is when our regular episodes are released. And we usually do special ones for films that come out in theaters uh, if we're able to see them in time, which is usually the case. So, uh, yeah, and, and and I love the concept of the name too. That it it really speaks to exactly what it is in in very concise way with the the comic book panels and the uh, twenty four frames per second. I I love clever names like that. You you can give all, full credit to that for uh, to Drew Jeffries. It's uh, as he uh, likes to remind people that will be the name of his book uh, <laughs> when he writes. He is an uh, he has completed his PhD. He is uh, this is uh, part of what he's been doing his thesis and other. Materials on and i know he's right now getting prepped to try and uh find somebody willing to actually uh publish the book as well so hopefully we'll be seeing that fairly soon um yeah i've heard that that mention on the podcast i i wasn't entirely sure just because of the way that you come about it if that was serious or if that was just uh, another one of the a running joke yeah no, it's one of those things where yeah he is uh uh, he has legitimately uh, been doing his, uh, his studies on this stuff as part of you know his interests there, uh, along with other things. You can find his CV and other material online as well. I, like I said, I, I'm not a PhD by any stretch of imagination. <laughs> I am just uh, someone that with a very passionate interest in this. I mean, we met and did one of the reasons uh, we know each other is we both went to uh, the same university through their film studies program, though. Um, so most of us uh, on the show really uh, came to know each other during those years and uh, have mostly the same interests, not always the same opinions, and I think that comes across very clear on the show. Um, mm-hmm. So you, you do get a fairly well-rounded uh, take on things. I mean, there's certainly no sacred cows as far as we're, we're concerned. Um, so... Yeah, and and I also like some of your fun segments that, that you've started to do a bit more, like the... Um, 
Well, I'm not 100% sold on the and reviews yet, uh, but those are fun. But I, I really, and I mentioned this on Twitter, I really love the uh, uh, Sin City dramatic uh, review. Yeah, Andrew is really responsible for those, and he, he's got a very active mind that is uh, infinitely more clever than I could ever hope to be. So, um, like I said, uh, so yeah, please uh, tune in. You will definitely find some uh, fun material there. Um, all right. Well, um, <clears throat> that was. Uh, uh, I'm glad to, to share the share 24 panels uh, on on this show. I've I've been listening for a while, and it's good to to get you on here to talk to you because uh, I it's not uh, as often that I get to talk to somebody else who has uh, something comic book or superhero related as much as me because I, I think. Uh, you are probably one of the few people that have seen that have uh, seen and, and talked about comic book movies that I have not seen, um, and that's pretty rare because I've I'm up to uh, over 250 now uh, as as far as the superhero and the comic book adaptations. Um, so it's uh, that's there's a lot of stuff out there. Oh, absolutely, and uh, like I said, and I hope not to disappoint this episode. So, uh. <laughs> all right, but uh, as always, we'll get to the the rest of the first part of the this show where I have some film related questions to get to know a little bit about more about your tastes um, outside of the possibly outside of the comic book genre. But uh, so, what are three films that you've seen the most often and haven't gotten tired of yet? Uh, hands down, uh, Manhunter, Michael Mann's 1986 film, which will be directly relevant to this episode, uh, the films we're discussing. Uh, it's my all-time favorite film. Uh, the other show I do, Cinema Chase, we did, our whole first episode was about Manhunter. It's a movie that, it, it, stylistically, in terms of its soundtrack, in terms of its subject matter, I mean, it hits all the right buttons for me, and it's, in many ways, sort of my ideal film. Um, hands down. Uh, besides that, uh, Ghostbusters is one I've ever since I've been a kid. I love that movie. Yeah. I, I can quote it day and night if I left my own <laughs> devices. Um, and so no need necessarily to go to, too much into that one. Uh, my third one, and I sort of went back and forth on this one, is Twitch to include, but I'm going to put down Gross Point Blank, um, the 1997 comedy. Uh, starring John Cusack and co-written by him as well, which I is criminally underseen. Uh, a very funny, very smart and perceptive little uh, comedy that sort of came and went and honestly really does deserve a much bigger audience than it has received over the years. Yeah, um, I've definitely heard people that, that do have, that do share a love of, of it, but I have not seen that one myself. It's really worth it. I mean, it, for those who haven't seen it, it's a uh, hitman comedy about a sort of disillusioned uh, hitman as played by John Cusack, who is invited back to his high school reunion uh, in Gross Point, Michigan. And for a variety of factors, this also co coincides with a hit that he's supposed to undertake, uh, while at the same time he tries to reconnect with the girl he ditched on prom night uh over 10 years ago. Uh, it, it's very funny, very smart, uh, very quotable as well. Um, and probably one of the better things Dan Aykroyd has done since his eighties heyday, um, <laughs> to say the least. So, yeah. Um, all right. So moving on, what is your favorite film that you've only seen once? 
Uh, in this instance, it's another John Cusack film, uh, Grifters, uh, from the early 90s, which is one that it took me forever to get around to watching. And it's a very, very clever uh, con man film uh, that is really, really good. And I have absolutely no excuse for not having seen it. Um, it's sitting on my shelf. I can see the DVD right beside me. Um, so it's not as if I, you know, don't have access to watching this film again. And honestly, I, I can't give you a reason for why I haven't watched it since. I mean, it really is something worth checking out. And I do recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen that one. Yeah, I, I completely understand the, uh, the dilemma of having a, uh, a full DVD shelf, but uh, not having the, the interest to, to watch any of them. <laughs> Yeah, it's the curse of this, and yet still feeling compelled to go out and buy other discs. Um, I need to stop, so. (laughs) All right, and and of course I ask everybody, what is your favorite superhero film? Uh, This one probably would change day to day, if (laughs) if I'm being completely honest. But more often than I come back to Tim Burton's Batman Returns from 1992, it is... As flawed as it may be, and I'm not going to make any claim for it being a perfect film, um, but what Burton did with those movies, I mean, I was the right age at the right time and saw them under the right conditions, uh, but they've just sort of become ingrained for me. And if that's basically saying that I have a bit of uh, nostalgia goggles on when considering it, I admit that's the case. But, I mean, it certainly is... It's a very different take on Batman. It's a very different take on superhero genre in general. Uh, And I would also argue somewhat... uh, engages in a degree of parody of it as well uh gentle parody but parody nonetheless uh, but I, I i think for all those reasons it is something that's really stands out for me yeah that that's also one of my favorites of that era of uh, superhero films i i would put that as uh um maybe just a, a couple shades under the dark knight as my favorite batman film yeah, and I can understand that. I mean, they're, they're definitely yeah, sort of like the polar opposite ends of what they're trying to do uh, in terms of with that character and with the material itself. But I, I think it's a very good indicator as to just how you know flexible Batman is as a concept in terms of how you can present it and how you can change it. And for anybody out there who wants to complain that, about that movie by saying Batman doesn't kill, no, he kills. Go back to the original <laughs> Bob Kane ones, okay? It's a non-argument for me. Um, so. Yeah, I, I think it's funny. And I, that'll also also have like this little place in my heart because it it uh, had me uh, come up, kind of come up with my first little uh, meme, uh, which I don't do uh, very often or really at all where I took the, uh, like one of those, uh, I can has cheeseburger memes. And I took the, uh, the image of the bat, the old Batman with Adam West holding the bomb and, uh, uh. and it says some days you can't get rid of a bomb. And then it shows the, uh, shots from, uh, Batman with the, uh, the clown and, and giving him the bomb. And it, and I put other days you can. Yes. <laughs> nice. That is, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's a definitely good callback to that. So. <laughs> um, all right, and I know that you already do a podcast on a narrow niche of films uh, similar to what I do with my site on the, the comic book films and the comic book adaptations. But if there was another narrow niche like that uh, that you might consider your favorite or something that you would maybe do another podcast or, or a website on, what would that be? 
well, the nice thing is I don't have to choose because uh, basically the other show I do, Cinema Chase, covers anything other than comic book <laughs> cinema. Um, uh, however, if I did have to focus it down onto one particular subject, uh, the 80s in general would be that subject. I... I, I, I admit, it is my favorite decade for film. It, it, for, there's something about that decade where even the bad movies uh, I find compelling to come back to and talk about. And I, again, maybe there's a degree of nostalgia playing into that. Even though I, you know, I was primarily a kid throughout the 1990s, but there's just something about the 80s that just draws me to them uh, in terms of the aesthetic, in terms of uh, subject matter, uh, in terms of the way in which popular culture, you know, this sort of weird fusion of, you know, you sometimes you get this very commercial venture cinema, and then some of the art cinema is just very odd and interesting, and occasionally the two intersect in very uh, unique ways, I think, in the 1980s uh, that you didn't quite see in other decades, either before or since then. So for me, that would be where I'd cover uh, what I'd be covering in general, uh, <laughs> if left to my own devices. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because I, I mean, I'm not uh, incredibly steeped in, into the like the film blogger community, uh, but I, I do feel like uh, '80s movies is a genre, and it's one referred to more than any other decade. Like you can you can mention. Uh, like you don't really hear something that feels like a '90s movie, or that feels like a 2000s movie, or a '70s movie, uh, but '80s movie definitely feels like a genre all by itself. And I think in part of it, I mean, certainly the the sort of people who grew up throughout the '80s, I mean, they're the ones who've now just sort of really entered into you know taking control of the reins of cinema as such right now. So I mean, you sort of see things such as Guardians of the Galaxy, where they're sneaking in. Uh, or not even sneaking it. I mean, overtly referencing uh, <laughs> 80s cinema in terms of that film. Um, I, I, I would say it'll probably shift by, I mean, I'm sure by the time we get to the uh, next decade, the 90s will suddenly become, you know, the big touch point and reference point for a lot of people in terms of what they're sort of, you know, nostalgic for. Um, but yeah, I mean, the 80s, had, there's just something about that decade that just really, I find, stands out. Uh, compared to other, and again, that's not a knock against you know the '70s or '60s or anything earlier than that because I love, I mean, I love all of cinema. I love diving into whatever I can get my grubby little hands on. But if I'm being completely honest with myself, I mean, that's the decade that really has made its impression upon me in more ways than one. So, yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Um, and finally, what would you say is your biggest film-wise, a, a film that you haven't seen yet that you feel like you really should have gotten around to by now? There is absolutely no excuse for me not having gotten around to seeing Paris, Texas yet from uh, Vim Vendors. Uh, I, I really do love that filmmaker's work. It's one I've been dying to get around and watch. And I honestly can't tell you why I haven't done that. I mean, there, there's not really an excuse. The film is available. It's not uh, impossible to get your hands on. Uh, by all accounts, the Criterion Collection's release of it is phenomenal. Um, so, I mean, again, it's not necessarily an obvious choice or one of the, mm. the big ones uh, as such for that, you know, people would sit there and say, like, Gone with the Wind or something. But right. for me personally, it just it's one that bugs me that I haven't gotten around to seeing as of yet. So Yeah, and I really love that, that you went with a, a more personal choice because I do think that film is a very personal experience. And 
sure, there's Citizen Kane, and, and you can say, well, maybe I haven't seen Citizen Kane, and it's the supposedly the greatest film of all time, but uh, it might not personally interest you as a film fan, but like you said, if if you're a, a big fan of, of that filmmaker, and, and that's uh, on top of your personal re- on top of your personal list, uh, I, I love hearing that kind of answer. Uh, even though I I couldn't even probably couldn't even tell you what Paris Texas is about. I think I've heard the title before. Um, it's a, like I I definitely know that it's a movie, but I I know nothing about it other than that. And that's the thing. I mean, for me, it's more or less, I mean, uh, for me, it's really comes down to the vendors factor. He's directed uh, a film. I, you know, again, one of the ones I debated putting in that uh, third slot for your first question was uh, the American friend, which is a movie I love to death. Um, starring Dennis Hopper and Bruno Gons and is an adaptation of the novel Ripley's Game done in the late 70s. And, you know, that was my introduction to Vendors. And I've gone on and seen many of his uh, films since uh, some of his documentaries, Lightning Over Water, Pina, and things such as such as uh, Million Dollar Hotel. Uh, that very peculiar film uh, from the mind of Bono and starring Mel Gibson. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, he really is a filmmaker. I mean, he, he's a filmmaker who, based on his name alone, I, I will check out anything he does. I, I he really is uh, held in that kind of high regard for me. So, oh, very nice. Um, well, uh, that was good to hear a little bit more about your film tastes. Uh, but now uh, it's time to get to the the two the first of two films, and uh, I've I've thought of uh, a, an interesting tagline, but I or uh, an interesting way to describe the way that uh, my guests choose the films, although I haven't quite worked it into a tagline just yet. But uh, I, I like to think of it now as uh, the the two films that that we're going to be talking about is a film that you're passionate about and a film that you're curious about. And uh, the the film that you're that you're passionate about that I have never seen before is Silence of the Lambs. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. You're a monster that kills people. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. I'm no killer. He's got real physical strength. Adenine. Cautious. Cytosine. Precise. Adenine. And he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. It's not human. I'll help you catch him, Clary. I can't control it. And I want to destroy it. Thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, the uh, 1991 film from Jonathan Demme, uh, adapting uh, Thomas Harris's 1988 novel um, uh, of the same name. And uh, I- I'm going to take a guess. I-, I think most people probably know the premise uh, of the film and the book itself, but I'll just give a quick description. Uh, the j- film's generally ab- is about Clary Starling, a young FBI trainee who is sort of given this task to go and interview uh, famed serial killer Hannibal Lecter, a psychologist who years ago was captured uh, and who's gained notoriety not just for being a serial killer, but for eating his victims. Uh, In the process of this interview, it turns out that in part she's been sent there because uh, in order to try and gain a little bit of insight from Lecter about a currently operating serial killer by the name of Buffalo Bill, who's been nicknamed Buffalo Bill, I should say, uh, 
Of course, it turns out that Lecter is more familiar with this case than he uh, initially would. They would initially believe, uh, and this leads to sort of an uh, ongoing game of trying to get uh, information out of him to help them track down this serial killer. Uh, particularly because uh, very early on in the film, he kidnaps his latest victim, uh, a woman uh, who it just so happens turns out to be the daughter of a senator, which is adding additional pressure onto everybody uh, to try and figure this, uh, figure out what's going or find this person before she is murdered or she's murdered and becomes just the latest victim in this uh, case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so I, I guess for me, I mean, I, I'm very familiar with this film. It's one I know quite extensively. But as somebody who has not seen uh, this film before, and I'm presuming hasn't either read the Harris novels, and from what you were saying, has really only been familiar with the recent uh, Brian Fuller television series Hannibal. Uh, I mean, what 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 was your take towards this? Um, Well, it's interesting because this is one of those films where it's it's become so ingrained in popular culture that it it's it was almost like i felt like i had seen it already even though i i never watched it because i'd seen so many clips there's so many pop culture references uh like it, it's i think it's interesting because whenever it gets to like the the buffalo bill scene the goodbye horses comes yes. on and my head immediately goes to clerks too yes Yes, it's yeah one of the more notorious sequences from this film, and one of the ones that has been uh, parodied to death uh, in some areas. And and I was also aware that um, that Hannibal, even though it's kind of thought of as a Hannibal Lecter film, that he doesn't get uh, a ton of screen time on here. They only kind of cut to him here and there. And I, although I will say that just based on what I heard, he. He did get a little bit more screen presence than I was expecting, um, which it's it's kind of like a um, I don't know like a pendulum. Like uh, everybody thinks of it as a Hannibal Lecter film, and then I read that that he only has like ten minutes of screen time, so my expectations went like swung to the other side of things where I didn't expect to see him very much. But then I watched it and. Uh, and I do agree with, I guess, I think it's a general consensus where even though he doesn't have a ton of screen time, um, he does have a very big presence throughout the entire film. Yeah, and, and I think it's uh, what you're saying. I mean, it, it's very much interesting in the sense that, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, even if you haven't seen this movie, chances are people are may feel like they've seen this movie because... Uh, its success in 1991 basically paved the way for the explosion of the criminal profiler and serial killer films that would dominate the 90s and into the 2000s, uh, and then eventually make their way into television and everything else. Um, I mean, certainly this led to it's some great movies in their own right. I mean, Seven would you would not have Seven without Silence of the Lambs, uh, and then you've ended up with any large number of derivatives uh, that are just <laughs> aping it uh, from start to finish. Um, but yeah, as far as the the, the uh, screen presence of Lecter goes, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, that we call it the Hannibal Lecter series because, in truth, that was never what this was in the first place. I mean, there wasn't really a series as such, uh, either in literature up to this point or in film up to this point. I mean, you know, the sort of contextualizing it as the Lecter saga sort of came post uh, Silence of the Lambs in terms of how popular it became. 
and then the build-up and hype that sort of eventually arrived in 2001 when Hannibal, the film, uh, was released to much divided critical opinion at the time <laughs> and to this day. Um, <clears throat> so, I, I mean, it's always interesting looking back on this because, I mean, this is become, you're quite right, this has become a very canonically uh, positioned film in, mm-hmm. in many ways and has become, in some cases, considered one of the all-time greats. Um, I do know, I'm trying to remember which, uh, was the American Film Institute, I think, voted, like, Lecter the greatest villain of all t- time or something a number of years ago as yeah, well. And they, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I mean, he was uh, sort of, yeah, I think he was ranked as, like, number one, um, particularly in regards to this film. So I guess, I mean, uh, between, I mean, I, I, I guess to open this up, I mean, did you enjoy the film? Uh, I guess to start simply from there, uh yeah, uh, I I really enjoyed the film start to finish. I mean, uh, it's it definitely has the the strong opening with the, uh, um, I mean, because you you get right into Hannibal Lecter like just within the first uh, ten minutes or so, um, and and I've I wasn't expecting that uh, exactly, and it, it's I mean Anthony Hopkins is just uh, you can't say anything bad about his performance. Not in this film. Uh, <laughs> later on, I mean, I think that as he went on in this role another two times, he went to Hammy and then finally arrived at self-parody. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting with Hopkins, because I think you're absolutely right. He's perfect in terms of what he's asked to do in this movie. Uh, I mean, he's very creepy, he's very disturbing, and he sort of fits within the heightened theatricality that does exist with this movie. Because I think it's one of those things where, you know, this is a film that has a very strong gothic streak to it. But yet it's still grounded in a sense of realism in terms of how Demi stages it. And Tak Fujimoto uh, photographs the film as well. Uh, I-, I love the photography in this film. Uh, that said... Um, I, uh, and again, I've discussed this at length at another show. But, uh, you know, my favorite lector is actually Brian Cox, who played... Uh, the role beforehand, and it's—I I think this is very interesting. Comparing, you know, we've had three really strong actors play this role now, um, and Hopkins is fantastic here. I, I again, I, he's a bit theatrical for my tastes overall, um, but he does fit the dynamic that this movie sort of creates. Brian Cox plays it a bit more. I mean, he, to me, he's creepier because he plays it so normally. I mean, his lector is not theatrical. He's not. Uh, you know, standing there in the sort of very still, still way, observing with the very, you know, pronounced eyes mm-hmm. as such. Uh, I mean, his take is more, you know, he's a guy sitting on his bunk who's terminally bored <laughs> in, in his cell. And just, you know, this is a, you know, he messes with people because it's a way to get some kicks while he's stuck where he is. Um, yeah, and I noticed that there's also the occasional, like, uh, slightly more subtle things. Like I know that there's one point, one part where, um, where Lecter is is talking to Clarice, and I think he's like looking up or something, and you can see his his nostrils just constantly flaring. Yeah, yeah, probably yeah, during that initial conversation in the uh, the asylum there, um, which is yeah. I mean, again, it's one of those things where those sort of very theatrical tricks that uh, ticks that Hopkins brings to the role because. Things like the whole sort of classic slurping sound that he does at that one point that's been parodied to death as well. <laughs> I mean, it's those are the sorts of things that would be, in another context where the tone shifted one way or the other, 
would be really off-putting or just like, okay, this guy's putting on a performance. But it works here because Demi walks that fine line in terms of, you know, between reality and the sort of heightened gothic. Uh, I hesitate to use the word to use Hammer-esque um, because it's not re- quite the style of Hammer horror either. But th- there is something that's more gothic and horrific about the approach to the material here uh, than, say, in Michael Mann's film or in some of what came later on. Um, though that Gothic Street is certainly alive in the uh, Brian Fuller television series, that much is sure. Um, so, but yeah, so, but, uh, so I guess I mean, so, so obviously, I mean, the, the Lecter parts made a big impact on you here. But of course, you know, he, and again, as we've heard earlier, it's not really a story about Lecter. Lecter is a part of this. And the, the real story of this film is focused on Clary Starring, played by Jodie Foster, our sort of protagonist throughout this film. So, I mean, you know, how does this, her side of the story work for you? I mean, how does she function sort of a protagonist in sort of some of the ways that Jonathan Demme sort of approaches putting the viewer in her uh, position as such, or giving her, identifying with her viewpoint? I mean, how did that work for you? Um, I I really did like her as a character because I I mean I, I know especially uh, here in the in the past year or so at least in certain circles uh, it's feminism is, is becoming a, a big word a, a dirty word to some people um, but uh, especially in terms of film how there is a, a lack of uh, of strong women in in a lot of cinema both behind the screen. Uh, both are both in front of the screen and behind the the camera, um, and I think Clarice Starling is is a really great character, and it touches on that and without making it too avert too avert. Uh, like there's the the scene at the beginning where um, he uh, he and Clarice go to the the crime scene to um, to investigate the body and. Um, the her her mentor the the FBI detective. Um, yep, Jack Crawford uh, played here by Scott Glenn in the film. Film. Yeah. Yeah. He he takes the uh, the sheriff um, into the other room and he kind of eyes. He says that it's uh, to talk to him alone, um, basically because they didn't want to talk to them uh, in front of a woman. And, yeah. and she even calls him out on that uh, a little bit later, which which is nice. Um, and there is a lot of that, uh, a lot of uh, kind of viewing her as a as a sexual object as well. About how uh, they they believe that they put her, they chose her because they thought that uh, uh, Lecter would get turned on by her and and might open up um, to her as a woman instead of. Uh, the, any of the other men that they come across. And, and there's also other uh, more slightly subtle moments, like uh, when she's back in the FBI training facility and her and her friend are jogging, and uh, there's a group of guys that are jogging in the other direction, and most of them all turn their heads to look back at her. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's one of the things that uh, the film does in a very clever way because you have those moments which are sort of more overt than that but even the way uh demi uh use, utilizes the camera because often you know you see things quite directly from starling's point of view where the camera becomes her eyes for her and it's very interesting in many of the sequences how suddenly 
when she's standing in the midst of a crowd or something, and it's usually large groups of men, you start to notice, notice how people are leering at her, or there is very much this, there's a condescension on their, on that's across their face that you can just tell that's there. Mm. And it's something that's, you know, particularly heightened because you know that you are now seeing from her perspective uh, what is going on. I mean, that scene you were talking about earlier with the sheriff and Crawford as he walks the sheriff out of the room, and she's left to stand there as this funeral's going on over in the other room, and these, you know, group of macho local cops are just sort of sitting there, just staring at her from around in a circle. Yeah, uh, and, and they all have, like, some of them kind of uh, have a slight smirk on their face. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, you know, it's something that says a lot without having to, you know, vocalize it necessarily. Um, and there, like, there's no grand speeches or anything in this movie where they feel they need, in order to underscore and take that subtext or themes in Hammerhill, where we get the David Goyer speech, um, <laughs> where he will write the themes and you will hear them uh, spoken aloud. You just get some moments like the one you've noticed here where, you know, Starling talks to Crawford about that and Crawford, just, you know, it's a great scene because he tries to play it off as if, you know, I was just, you know, saying that to get the guy out of the room so that we could get down to work. And, you know, she just tells, well, it still matters because they look to you to see how to act. Like, I mean, calling him on his position of authority um, and, you know, what and, you know, how he influences others. I mean, that's a very small detail. And, you know, I love the way Crawford, he just takes that. I mean, he just takes that criticism and, you know, recognizes, like, you're right, I need to do better than that. And, you know, they don't revisit that. I mean, no, that doesn't become a major plot point later on, mm-hmm. but it becomes a significant point in terms of the dynamic and relationship between those two characters and in terms of the film's, uh, again, very overt feminist politics. I mean, this is a just, you know, overtly feminist film, and one that I think, I mean, has become increasingly relevant uh over the years, rather than less relevant. I mean, it's very in- telling just how insightful and forward-thinking uh, Demi and crew, and even Thomas Harris in his original book, because a lot of this does, you know, originate there with that original book as well. Um, I mean, these areas still remain relevant issues and have become almost be- increasingly, uh, you know, significant, as you've acknowledged here, because, you know, as we become sort of entered into this media-saturated visual culture, you know, the idea of perspective, the idea of whose sight or, you know, whose vision are we seeing uh, has become something that's more significant for us to deal with as a culture, mm-hmm. uh, certainly. So, but. Yeah, and and it's, it's also interesting that she isn't really, she's never really glammed up or uh, um, like overdressed. Uh, she's, she just wears like uh, fairly conservative clothes throughout the, the, the whole movie. Um, but she's also not kind of put in a, in basically a a woman playing a man either. No, no, uh, absolutely not. You're quite correct. Um, I mean, I think a lot of this comes down to actress Jodie Foster. I mean, she, I think has demonstrated over the years. She is a very skilled and very, you know, intelligent actor who knows the kinds of choices that she makes. And I think I would be very surprised if she didn't have a great deal of say in terms of what that character was going to wear and how she was going to be presented uh, mm. over the course of this film. Yeah, and, and it's also great that she does get to have her moments of, of vulnerability and um, and like uh, just the, the softer moments um, where she does 
uh, have have to deal with what she's going through. Um, she's not just uh, completely hard as a rock. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, she she is very much you know a rookie at this point in the film, and I mean, there's very nice touches where. I mean, I could easily have seen a version of this film where the filmmakers took a look and said, well, you know, if we're going to present her as being strong, she, you know, she has to be ultra competent and ultra, you know, intelligent and, you know, really make her, you know, this, you know, almost impossibly uh, perfect uh, badass as such uh, in terms of this. And instead, no, you know, she makes, you know, you have scenes such as when she's in training, when she doesn't check the, the spot in her door. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the instructor points out, you know, you would be dead now because of this. And, you, you know, it's a small moment, but it pays off later on when you see towards the end of the film where she takes that lesson to heart and utilizes it in terms of trying to survive in, uh, you know, spoiler alert here, uh, when she finally confronts Buffalo Bill here uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of the movie. Um, and even things such as, you know, the ending of the film, again, you know, it plays in part close to that sort of the slasher dynamics in the sense that, you know, again, you're almost having the, uh, where you start seeing from the killer's perspective finally, and Starling is at a very vulnerable moment. And mm-hmm. it almost evokes things such as, you know, the, you know, I'll dub it Jason vision from Friday the 13th, <laughs> uh, there for a moment. And, you know, it does it in a, you know, it does it without, you know, engaging in sort of the more misogynistic undertones that those films carry. Uh, at all. And I mean, it makes it a point where, you know, she's a character who's getting by because she's clever, because she's smart, uh, and because she, you know, is willing, you know, she doesn't, you know, lose her head in turn when these crises get personal or get dangerous, um, as such. But yeah, and, and that's, that's such a great scene too, because it's, uh, we get the, the night vision because he shuts the lights off and, uh, and that's set up at the beginning too, because whenever we we're first introduced to Buffalo Bill as a character, we see him with these night vision goggles. Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, there's so many small details that are built into this film in terms of how they address that, in terms of you know visual motifs that recur throughout it. Um, you know, uh, little touches such as the night vision goggles and how they. You know, it, it's you know you only see those goggles once earlier in the movie. And then, you know, suddenly, you know, when they come back at the end, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, he did have those. Uh, it's one of those <laughs> things where, you know, again, this is a film that doesn't, you know, it doesn't handhold you throughout it. I mean, it does expect the audience to be able to put the pieces together and be able, to, you know, to make the dot, connect the dots both thematically and narratively uh, in ter- uh, throughout uh, I mean, that's not to say it makes it overly difficult for the viewer either, but it, it finds the nice balance that I think many films t- tend to lose when they don't trust the intelligence of their audience mm-hmm. uh, as much as this film does. Yeah, and, and I also like uh, throughout the film how how they talk about the uh, like the profiling, the uh, psychology behind everything, and they they do follow up with that. Like, there's the whenever we see the senator. Um, on the the television, and uh, Clarice, uh, she discusses about how it's smart, how she keeps saying the her name, uh, the victim's name, over and over, because that helps to uh, to try and humanize the subject. Uh, because uh, as a serial killer, they will dehumanize them as much as possible. And then whenever we do finally get to see Buffalo Bill with her down in the well. He he always he only refers to her as it. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, they had an amazing detail that I, it's always amazing how many people overlook that little touch because it is, again, they don't, you know, ram it down your throat that he's doing that, but it's there. Um, and again, it's just, it's such a smart, savvy choice on their part uh, in this film. And I also love the way that this is a film that, you know, there's a profile that's created for Buffalo Bill early on, and you sort of hear what it is. But it, the film doesn't, you know, default to one of the single most annoying tropes that I hate in these uh, these kinds of films, which is where serial killer psychology is reduced to mere cause and effect. Um, where, you know, everything can be explained because, there, you know, events A, B, C, and D happened, mm. and suddenly that's how you get a serial killer. And I hate that approach. Yeah, yeah, we never do get a flashback to like Buffalo Bill's childhood where he was uh, abused and and you get to see what it was where he like, I don't know, he has this doll or something that's stitched together and like in a modern movie that that would be like, oh, I see that's that's why he does what he does. Absolutely. And I mean, Thomas Harris himself in his original works, I mean, he he has a fault as an author and and he does. Uh, One of the things is he does like to try and go into the sort of over explanatory uh, elements uh, of character psychology like that. He did that. He doesn't took far less in the novel Silence of the Lambs, but in Red Dragon, uh, the very first novel to feature the character of Lecter, he does it very much for the character, uh, the Tooth Fairy, the serial killer featured in that book. And, you know, again, coming to the first film adaptation of that Manhunter, one of the wisest things that Michael Mann did for that movie was just throw that all in the garbage. I mean, you don't see the killer's backstory. You know, you're given visual hints and clues around that you can maybe extrapolate from. That's as far as it goes. Um, Sadly, when they decided to do a second adaptation and we got Red Dragon in 2002, uh, they did not learn from that. Uh, (laughs) They did not take that lesson to heart. And instead, we get exactly that problem where we are given, you know, very clear, you know, cause and effect in terms of he was abused as a child, you know, and suddenly Edward Norton can pull out uh, little pieces of his backstory in order to uh, take advantage of them at a, you know, precise moment. Uh, But... Uh, yeah, so it's interesting, uh, to say least. So, uh, kudos to the, you know, restraint, uh, by Jonathan Demi and Ted Talley, uh, in their adaptation. Um, yeah. And, and one other thing that, that I do want to talk about a little bit is, uh, there, there's a great scene in the middle of the film with, uh, Lecter's escape. And that's also something that's very nicely set up, um, even though the the only thing the only sort of small criticism I would give against it, which I I think that it it works well enough, but uh, like the um, the movie definitely overemphasizes the pen just a little bit. Um, I, although I will say that I did not know exactly where like what was going to happen with the pen until uh, until I saw him. Um, in his new cell in in the middle of the uh wherever that was the art museum or or whatever yeah the sort of i think it's a federal building if i'm not mistaken or something along those lines but yeah 
uh, he's in the end, this middle of this sort of grandiose room, which again, I, I, that's a bit of the theatricality definitely being brought to the film in terms of its sort of gothic imagery. And certainly by the end of that sequence you're discussing here, I mean, that's the film at its most gothic, uh, hands down, particularly when the uh, officers come into the room after Lecter has immediately gotten out of his cell and discover what's happened to their fellow officers. Um, <laughs> it is, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a jaw dropper of a sequence. Um, and very, I, I mean, again, it's a cleverly staged one as well. Um, in terms of, again, you, you, he's very focused on procedure and how these people operate, you know, and I, again, I appreciate the fact that the, the cops in this movie, they're not presented as buffoons. Yeah, yeah, they're not buffoons. I mean, these are people who they know their procedures. They know what they're doing. It's just that the person they're dealing with is so atypical and so sophisticated that it's it's difficult for them to really predict what he's going to do uh, mm-hmm. in the situation. Um and I would love to have been in a theater in 1991, uh, as I am now, not as a child. I'm sure I would have been traumatized <laughs> as a child. Uh, but uh, to see, you know, you know, people when the punchline to that sequence is delivered and how people sort of, I would imagine there was, had to be a good number of people who were just outright freaked to screaming um, by that. I mean, it, it's a doozy. I won't spoil it myself here. But. Yeah, and, and that, was, that was another moment that that I was expecting because I, like I I don't um it was kind of one of those half remembered things that's that's kind of worked its way into the into the cultural cultural knowledge so uh, even before they kind of uh, uh hinted at what was going on w- within the the film uh, I already knew what was going on with that so, but it, it was still fascinating to watch to see it play out yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's always a good sign of a good movie because, I mean, you know, I've seen this film it, at least, I would have to imagine, a good 10 to 15 times, somewhere in that vicinity. And every time I've watched it, you know, I may know what's happening in the plot, but the craftsmanship that goes on uh, is what keeps people engaged. And I, I think that this is an expertly crafted movie in terms of, again, things such as the cinematography, the editing, uh, Howard Shore's score, which I, uh, you know, I mean, Howard Shore, I think, like many of his uh, contemporaries from that time, I think he's hit upon hard times where film music's become very homogenized uh, over about the past 15 years. But his score in this film is phenomenal. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's very... It's noticeable without being bombastic, uh, if that makes any sense. Um, right, and, and I will say that um, since since this was the first time I watched it, that uh, I uh, for me it was one of those scores that I I didn't notice it um, per se, but uh, I I will definitely give it credit for enhancing the scenes uh, because uh, there's def there is this air of tension throughout the film, and it, it's one of those things where I'm I'm sure that it was helped by the score, but uh, uh, even though I watched it just a couple hours later, I can't um, I can't place how any of the score went whatsoever. Yeah, it's not necessarily a score you're going to come out of the, you know, you're going to come out of watching it and start, you know, humming the themes like, you know, something like Jaws or, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or any of the, the, the sort of really iconic ones. But in terms of the atmosphere it builds for this movie, in terms of, you know, 
sort of the subtlety of the way it, you know, it builds tension and horror and dread uh, in it. I mean, it, it is quite phenomenal. And again, I mean, it, it's, you know, the complete flip of the type of score you see in Manhunter, which is this very synth-heavy, uh, in a good way, a really great synth score, uh, heavy on, you know, popular music and other material within it, whereas this one is more classical in its stylings. But, you know, I mean... I'm struggling to find the right words to describe it as. I admit, I, I'm not terribly good at this. I mean, it probably helps. I mean, Howard Shore had, a, you know, around this time, had a really strong background in doing uh, scores for horror films as well. I mean, this is the man who did stuff. For, I mean, a lot of Cronenberg's movies, uh, he has scored as well. And this is all prior to him sort of hit, going into the Lord of the Rings uh, and, you know, turning out what, what his more... I, I think that's the point where basically Howard Shore becomes less interesting as a composer. Uh, it, it seems like the minute anybody's asked to do, the, the, your, here's your opportunity to do your John Williams. Um, that seems to be like, you know, the moment where almost you hit a creative dead end, because at that point, that's all they're ever going to ask you to do. Um, <laughs> so, uh, mild tangent there. You'll also find those on 24 panels per <laughs> second frequently. Um, so. Yeah, yeah there, there was one other just quick quick scene that i wanted to to mention just because it's i find it interesting because i i imagine this i well i i imagine this probably wasn't the first movie to do it but it's definitely something that has been uh revisited many times especially with some of the films that i've watched where they do the uh the simultaneous um uh intercutting whenever they're raiding the house yes um and so like it uh, just very early on to that scene, I, I knew exactly what they were doing with it. But I have to say that I still think that it was done very well because even though I, I knew what was going to happen, like who was going to open the door and what the police were going to find, uh, I still was kind of in the back of my mind, almost second guessing the, uh, right to the very end. Yeah, it's, I think, again, a lot of that in that sequence particularly comes down to the way in which it's edited and the way in which the soundtrack sort of used to bridge those sequences. Because, I mean, the, the, the connecting point is that bell, um, or the bells, I should say, <laughs> uh, in that particular moment. And, you know, the way in which, you know, they cut from one to the other and su suggest that link between the two. Right. Um, I mean, you're quite right. I, I think uh, it's something where you can tell where it's going. But the way in which it's building the tension, and in part because I think this comes down from the fact that the way it plays out isn't so much a revelation for the audience. It's a revelation for a particular character uh, uh, by the end of that sequence, I, I think is partly why that still works, um, even once you know what the twist as such is going to be um, over right. time. But, I, I mean, I think that's the thing with this movie in general. I mean, uh, you know, if you're somebody who wants to study the art of filmmaking and of craftsmanship and of things such as editing, this is really a film to sort of focus in on because, uh, I mean, it, it's a very tightly crafted movie, but it's not flashy about it. I mean, you know, it, it's stylish without becoming... Uh, an exercise in style as such, you know, this isn't, you know, if this is a filmmaker who's doing things on a for deliberate reasons with clear intention, um, and has, you know, a technical team and a, you know, a group of really fantastic actors to work with in front of the camera, uh, to carry that out. And I mean, everybody is on their game in this film, uh, in a way that, you know, 
it, it's a rarity to see. I mean, it's rare to see a film that is this coherently put together with this much focus, uh, particularly in a genre film like this. I mean, because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you know, and this is one of the things we sort of discussed back on that first Cinema Chase episode. You know, this wasn't a, you know, intended as an Oscar-winning picture. It was a genre picture that... Yeah, it's it's a thriller film. That, uh, to put it into a genre, because I, I definitely... I don't really see too much horror elements aside from some of the gore. Yeah, I, I, I think the film... The, the initial Lecter films sort of walk a fine line. I think Manhunter is firmly a thriller. I think Michael Mann's particular style and approach to the material, you know, where it becomes very much a beat-the-clock film in many ways in that instance, you know, makes it into a thriller. Demi sort of, like, he, he's definitely borrowing stylistic ticks from the horror genre in terms of, as you n- note here, the gore. Mm-hmm. For certain, again, some of these sort of gothic theatricality, the lighting techniques, and... Uh, even, again, some of the tension-building techniques, uh, such as, again, as we've already acknowledged, the end of the film, where it does sort of borrow that serial killer vision from things such as, you know, Friday the 13th. Although, to be fair, I mean, you know, stuff like Peeping Tom and other uh, films long before the Friday the 13th series had done that, so uh, it, it's probably unfair of me to give credit work to that <laughs> particular series uh, when it comes to this. So, Other, other than the Friday the 13th is, is a lot more well-known. Yeah, I think for this generation, which is unfortunate because Peeping Tom really is such a good movie. uh, (laughs) If you're going to check one out, check that out as well. You know, make a triple bill out of it, Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs. You won't regret (laughs) it. Um, But, so I I guess, I mean, it sounds, if I'm to guess, I mean, we've hit a lot of the points we really wanted to hit. I mean, as somebody who has, I mean, as, you know, you'd said you'd seen sort of Hannibal, the series, is your uh, only sort of thing prior to this, correct? Uh, uh, not the series, the the film. Oh, the film, it's, oh, okay. Um, so, like, I've, so, like, I've seen the, uh, uh, I definitely saw the, the scene surrounding the, uh, the where Ray Liotta is eating his own brains. Yeah, <laughs> which, I, I, I guess the key thing here is, I mean, based on this film, would you be intrigued to go and check out what else is out there as part of this series? Um, I don't know. I I just, I've, I have heard kind of such negative things about Hannibal and the, the bits that I have seen. Um, like I saw, I know I saw parts of the beginning because I, I know... Uh, I remember, um, like the stuff about the the hogs. Yeah, um, I, I know that was from that that movie. I, I've seen like a good chunk of the beginning there with the dealt with the hogs, but I haven't seen it all the way through. But I, I'm not entirely that interested. Uh, I I think if I did watch another one, I would watch Manhunter because uh, uh, aside from uh, of course you, uh, I have heard other people that that really like that as a film, and of course Michael Mann is. is is a great director and i've seen a, a couple of his films and i've really loved those so yeah no yeah, no I, like i said yeah i i would definitely at least check out manhunter for sure uh you can skip by uh hannibal rising um <laughs> i advise everybody to skip hannibal rising i don't know what everybody was thinking with that one um other than we need more money um but <laughs> thank you dina de Laurentiis. um so all right. Well, I I think we've pretty much covered Silence of the Lambs. It it, it was a, a great film. Um, it's I I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm I'm glad that uh, that you were able to introduce it to me. 
But we are going to take a quick break, and then whenever we come back, we're going to talk about the film that I had you watch for the first time, The Death of the Incredible Hulk. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. All right, guys, so we need to record our top three reasons why you should listen to French Toast Sunday podcast. Number three should definitely be our diverse opinions. Number two should probably be our top three lists that we do every week. No, it's got to—it's got to be Mark Wahlberg. What about Gwyneth Paltrow's head? It's got to be fighting the sadness in the swamp of sadness. Full frontal stories about being lost at sea. Brendan Fraser being underground. Helen Mirren's boobs. Baltimore accents as heard in The Wire. Underclothes. Crepes. Character studies. Wait, 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 guys. What about movies? No. Tree rape. Hmm. Tree rape? Yeah, I like tree rape. Tune in every Friday for a new episode of French Toast Sunday podcast brought to you by us at FrenchToastSunday.com. Clothing made out of Burger King wrappers. <laughs> the Death of the Incredible Hulk was the third TV movie after the Incredible Hulk TV show with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. It was meant to be the final end to the series, even though there were talks afterwards about bringing the Hulk back after this film, uh, up until Bill Bixby's, Bill Bixby's death in 1993. Uh, the film had Bill Bixby not only as the star, but he also directed and uh, executed produced this movie. Uh, it was made for TV movie. It was a made for TV movie, so it had an accordingly small budget. Uh, and even though I haven't really watched the TV show, I, I imagine that the all the special effects were were very similar to what you would see in in the TV show. Um, and this it's interesting because I um, I've seen bits and pieces of the original TV show, but I never really regularly watched it. So this is kind of my first experience with the with the uh, that Incredible Hulk TV show, and it, it's kind of interesting to to come to it from the end of the show. Um, but I, I know that you, I, I believe you were the ones one of the ones that watched the uh, one of the other TV movies from the Hulk. Were you familiar with the, the television show as well? I, you know, I'd seen episodes of the show uh, from time to time growing up. It wasn't something I watched with a regular basis, but I knew about it. Uh, for our other, for 24 panels per second, uh, we've done both of the, we did the first two reunion films, uh, which were backdoor pilots uh, for other proposed television series. One which was a Thor television show. Uh, that pilot was, or that backdoor pilot was not that good. And then there was The Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Uh, which we did very recently in light of it being, you know, the first uh, live action adaptation of Daredevil, uh, which I actually do recommend people check out if you haven't. And I mean, you know, for more information on that, uh, look back at the back catalog of episodes of 24 panels. Uh, but <laughs> uh, self-promotion. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, the, the, I was I think I had enough general familiarity, you know, coming into this to be able to say that. Yeah, the death of the Incredible Hulk is very similar in, to the show in which it's following up. Um, in, in truth, as you're sort of an adaptation of the Hulk, it doesn't differ so much from what had come before it. So I don't think the the interest in it doesn't really necessarily lie there. I would say that probably more than anything else, it's the fact that this is the final <laughs> for that show is the context. And for what I understand from what little I can actually find about this movie online, 
is it wasn't necessarily intended to be a final uh, <laughs> as such. It was only once the ratings came in that it was sort of like, well, yep, that does it for that. Uh, <laughs> never again will this happen. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the death of Bixby afterwards, you know, pretty much cemented that there was never going to be a continuation of this incarnation ever again. Um, but... Uh, so I guess I mean you know in this this is sort of you coming to the show in some ways to sort of to, for the first time, you know what were you sort of expecting from this? Um, um, I I think I was expecting more or less what I got. I think the biggest surprise of coming into this um, for for the first time was how whenever we were introduced to David Banner, he's playing a basically a mentally challenged janitor in in this uh uh high tech facility and um and so f- without any background uh, my thought was like uh, did something happen to him in an earlier episode to make him like did he suffer too many blows to the head which caused him to to be this uh, this slow janitor well, yeah, this is honestly, you know, one of those things that's, you know, d- deeply, pr- I was not expecting it myself. And it was, I knew it was, a. I, I quickly figured it was a ruse, but yeah. I, it's one of those things where in terms of, you know, looking back on this, you know, 25 years after this film's release, uh, it certainly is deeply problematic and uncomfortable to watch it because <laughs> it is very much this uh, stereotypical and really kind of a really offensive in many ways presentation. I mean, I get from the narrative reasons why he's doing what he's doing, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't make it any less troubling sort of looking at this and going, and again, I can imagine, I I very seriously doubt anybody was intending to be offensive with it uh, (laughs) uh, when they did it. But I mean, it's certainly relying on some old stereotypes and tropes and presentations of intellectual disability that are very dated in some cases and very, you know, you know, reinforce certain stereotypes. I mean, to come back to our previous conversation from the last one, you know, you know, people look to you and what you do matters. And, (laughs) you know, this is kind of one of those instances where the film sort of gets off on an uncomfortable starting point. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it certainly, I think especially because we don't get to see David Banner in any other context. Uh, He's introduced uh, to the audience as well as, uh, well, I guess he was already established to the other characters, but he's introduced to the audience as this slow character. And I'm sure they expect that, that most people have come uh, watching this show based on uh, that were fans of, of the show, so they, uh, I imagine most uh, that they would assume that he was just uh, playing this role and, and hiding, uh, basically trying to hide in plain sight, more or less. Yeah, and I think this comes back to sort of, I mean, uh, for those who haven't seen the show, I mean, the basic way in which they approached it was uh, they took the fugitive and basically slapped a great big giant green monster in the middle of it, um, <laughs> who will, you know, everybody talks about what a danger he is, even though the worst he does is break through people's walls <laughs> and toss them across the room. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's very... Uh, 
much in that style. And I, I think one of the things uh, when we did discuss the Daredevil uh, episode re- uh, film recently was the which the way that film you know it came out in '89 and that was just before the superhero genre under in film and television underwent a seismic shift with Tim Burton's Batman mm-hmm. uh, coming out a few months later. And you know to come to this film, I mean, I, I mean you could sit there and say you know. Trial of the Incredible Hulk still roughly fits within television at that time. Looking at this film uh, now, in 1990, this thing is dated badly um, in in many ways. And I'm not usually someone to bring, you know, saying something's dated. It's not a criticism I typically like to go with. But this very much, even by 1990, when you consider contextually that, you know, The Flash was on television at the same time. Right. And Uh, and I recently watched the the 1990 Flash just, uh, just last summer. And and that was, I mean, that was dated, but that was still very enjoyable. And and there was a lot of stuff that they did that still looks pretty decent. Yeah, I mean, it's a show that I mean, certainly it's very much wearing its influences on its sleeve. But it's part of that part and parcel of an era that's very much trying to bring more, you know, of the comic books as as it were to the program than it was trying to hide it. I mean, The Flash is at the very least an out-and-out superhero show in many regards, whereas the Incredible Hulk programs were generally, you know, they, you know yeah, there's a giant green monster, but we're going to hide that for 90% of the film <laughs> um, or episode, as it were, until, you know, he shows up and needs to beat up the local biker gang or whatever the, the threat of the week was, um, you know. <laughs> Which, in which, to be entirely fair, the Hulk is kind of overkill in terms of needing to address this issue. Um, and this film very much follows falls into that same problem. Uh, and I, I think part of the, the issue here is that, you know, even though this is contextually, this is the last uh, story in that universe, as it were, mm-hmm. it does, for the bulk of its running time, this doesn't feel like a final. Um, because, I mean, I guess we haven't really addressed what the plot of this is. Um Basically, David Banner, our on-the-run scientist, he's, you know, as we've acknowledged here, he's basically, you know, trying to get break into this facility, where, which is doing studies on gamma radiation and science in general, because, you know, let's face it, none of this is actually going to hold up in a real science uh, <laughs> lab. Um, I believe he's, he's trying to look at genetic research in order to help heal people. Yeah, and it, which ties back into the original show where Banner was trying to tap into that untapped human potential uh, because of the death of his wife in order to, you know, bring out superhuman strength as need be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this ties back to that, and he thinks that he might be able to gain a cure his Hulk condition uh, through help here. Uh, eventually, he's sort of discovered by the friendly scientist uh, who apparently becomes like a father to... <laughs> are, you know, like late 40s, if not early 50s, David Banner. Um, I thought that was the, the most hilarious <laughs> subplot. It's as bad as, you know, Hawkeye from MASH needing a father figure in the later years of that show. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is a full-grown man at this point, people. Um, so, yeah, so th- there's that. But meanwhile, uh, there's this secondary plot, because let's not forget, this is 1990. Uh, the Cold War is, you know, we're just getting out of that at this point in time in history. And by God, there's a Russian uh, spy ring that basically becomes involved in this with our uh, not Black Widow, Black Widow, Jasmine. Um, who, Jasmine. Jasmine, yes. Uh, who... Uh, is tasked by her le- dubious, mor- morally dubious handlers uh, 
uh, to complete that one last job, uh, which is to get a hold of, you know, this vital information and this research from this lab. Right, and which I have to point out because I am a huge fan of Babylon 5. Um, and, and not only that, but there's, there was this, uh, kind of random PlayStation 2 game called Primal and, uh, and both of those it had Andreas Katsoulis in it. Uh, he played Jakar in Babylon 5. Yeah, which is, yeah. That shows up as the villain. And that's a show I've actually been getting caught up with myself lately. I, I'm almost done the fourth year uh, of that series, and he turns in a fantastic performance in that <laughs> show. Uh, that's not the only bit of uh, you know genre casting in this one as well, because Elizabeth Grayson uh, is in the show who plays Jasmine. And if you're not familiar with that name, it's not necessarily surprising. But let's be you know for somebody as nerdy as me, uh, I should note that she was later the star of Highlander the Raven, <laughs> that godforsaken piece of crap television show from the mid '90s that I wish we could all forget. But you know, if I'm going to suffer with the knowledge of its existence, I'm going to make sure everybody else does as well. So. And she also showed up in an episode of The Flash because she looked familiar, and so I had to look her up myself too. And uh, that's where I had seen her in. Okay, so. Uh, so 1990, the year of superheroes for Elizabeth Grayson. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, really, the, the plot of this film is it's bog standard fare because sure enough, Banner's going to become involved in the lives of these people he's just met, uh, develop very close relationships, which will presumably never be mentioned again after this. Um, <laughs> although for in this instance, there's at least a good reason it's not going to get mentioned again. <laughs> there is no more. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think the but. There are nods here. There are moments in this film where it feels like we may be reaching a conclusion as such. Uh, and those are the moments that work kind of the best for me, at least. Um, things such as Banner, as he acknowledges at one point, finally getting to see the Hulk for the first time. Uh, which, <laughs> yeah, which for me, coming into this... Um, as, uh, coming into this more or less fresh, I thought that was kind of a, a ridiculous moment. Like I, I suppose it, it makes sense that uh, to some extent, but especially in in this day and age where where we're used to everything being recorded, it's it's bizarre to think of that he's been the Hulk for like at that point over ten years, <laughs> like yeah, eleven years, and. and and uh, as far as TV time, and he still hasn't seen, uh, he hasn't been able to see the Hulk. And and, and it's also, uh, I like how they, they do point out where they are pretty much two different uh, people. Like he doesn't, he's not actively conscious whenever the Hulk comes out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there really is a sort of Jekyll and Hyde dynamic, which they sort of underline very heavily in this version. And I, and I admit, it's one of those things that probably, the, the, the notion that he's never seen the Hulk really does sort of play as kind of dated today. Um, I, to an extent, the show kind of gets away with it, because the, the way they played up the Hulk is that Banner was sticking mainly to the back roads and, you know, mm -hmm. traveling in the country. He's more or less an urban myth that's never been proven. Right. Uh, so over the course of things. So it's one of those things. But I, I think it really does 
underscore just kind of how out of place this film was already feeling by 1990. Yeah, and I, I do think that a big a big problem with this is that it is an 11 year old properly property. I, I believe it started the show started in 79. Uh, if if I'm getting my years correct, and somewhere in the late 70s for sure. Yeah. And so, but whenever they're doing this this um, film, they are. Uh, it feels like they're constrained to all the to what they've done in the show. Like they're trying to make it look as much like this '70s show as possible, but it's 1990. Uh, there's uh, basically no obvious efforts to update anything about it. Yeah, I mean, it really is problematic in that in that sense because it very clearly is, and part of it's likely budget. Part of it is the fact that I mean, you know, although I don't think most of the people who were involved in the show's production were there by this point. I mean, Bill Bixby had obviously been there for quite a long time, and it certainly seems as if he had internalized for the this film many of the directorial choices made on that show, many of the stylistic choices of that show, and certainly the attitude taken towards things such as the Hulk, where the goal is to keep Lou Ferrigano on screen as little as possible uh, in this role, is certainly coming into play there. I mean, I I think there are a few shifts, though. A couple minor, small things, such as, you know, things such as force fields being involved (laughs) here, and, you know, with their sub-next-generation special effects to achieve (laughs) it are you know it's probably outside of the uh, the presence of thor uh two two films back you know is the most overtly sci-fi i think the show had been in terms of things such as technology uh as presented in the show because most of the time for what i remember of the program it was usually the hulk versus you know low-level thugs or kidnappers or you know burly mountain men who drink too much it was (laughs) never um the abomination wasn't showing up on this program um (laughs) So, although I think there was one where he fought the Sasquatch, I, I could be mistaken on that, so don't quote me. Um, that that may have been the six million dollar man, but it it may have also been the same Sasquatch in both shows. It, more than likely, I mean, really, a lot of those seventies, you know, programming really does start to bleed together after a while. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. He does feel really dated in terms of that presentation. And I mean, in you know, light of the film we were discussing prior to this as well, the film's sort of gender politics and gender presentation, uh, let's just say it's dubious at best. Um, you know, Jasmine, the dangerous Russian spy, is not exactly, you know, presented in the most flattering of light in this movie. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, her ability to defend herself and, you know, basic skills. Like, it's kind of one... She is so unable to defend herself. Right. It's, yeah, well, she has zero fight scenes. All her scenes are basically infiltration, and, and she doesn't even know that her sister is her boss. Yeah, it's it's so weird. And she's constantly threatened with, you know, this, you know, torture expert who... <laughs> they, who, who unbends a, a paper clip. Yeah, who bends a paper clip and, you know, is later taken down when a bookshelf or filing cabinet is dropped on him by her. It's it's the most, you know, pathetic setup and then smack down mm. uh, in this entire film. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's very much taken this very, you know, 
old conservative view where, you know, women are somehow weak and defenseless. And it, 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 you know, which isn't the case in reality. I think anybody could, should be able to acknowledge that fact. <laughs> and particularly when we're dealing with what is supposedly a well-trained Russian agent, you know, basic defense would presumably be part of her skill set. Um, <laughs> Although, I, I have to ask this. Have you seen Avengers Age of Ultron uh, at this point? Yes, I have. Okay. Am I the only one kind of uh, amazed that the notion of, you know, Banner falling in love with what is soon to be an ex-Russian uh, sleeper agent, an infiltration agent, uh, would reappear in 2015? Um, and if so, did Joss Whedon see this movie? Um <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know, but I I, I did I did kind of like the uh, the whole romance angle, even though it it was maybe a little far fetched. But uh, and I'm I'm also kind of curious if this was like the first time that he uh, became romantically interest interested in in the, um, a woman since the start of the episode, or if that was something that kind of uh, happened uh, it, a few it, times it, per season. It definitely happened a few times per season. I mean, even, you know, two films ago uh, in the Incredible Hulk, or the, is it the Return of the Incredible Hulk or the Incredible Hulk returns? Either way, whatever the title is, uh, that Thor backdoor pilot, you know, Banner is, you know, romancing somebody, you know, he's, you know, sort of in a committed relationship at that point. You know, he's trying to live as normal a life as possible, you know, so it's one of those things where, I mean, the, the basic setup for the show, like many of these sort of genre programs or television in general, or at least American television, I should say, in general at that period of time, was, you know, you always reset the status quo by the end of it. <laughs> and that's ba pretty much the way the TV movies went as well, uh, with the obvious exception of this one, for reasons we'll get to soon enough. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, certainly the, the romance... I mean, had there been another film, it would not have carried on. It would have been probably forgotten within the first five minutes of whatever the next film would have been. Uh, yeah. One one bit of, of trivia that I did find and uh, did find um, interesting was the fact that at one point this was also going to be considered to be a, a third attempt at a backdoor pilot for a She-Hulk. Yeah, at least if if uh, Wikipedia is to to be believed, which isn't always the case. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where I, I tried to. It's one of those things I'd heard, and I tried to find more information to confirm one way or the other. And if that was indeed the case, I, I don't see where the, you know you would have had to have undergone some significant rewrites if their version of She Hulk was going to be anything remotely like. Uh, its comic book counterpart, which, to be fair, it probably didn't necessarily have to be. Uh, certainly, their version of Thor bears little resemblance to the character Stanley and Jack Kirby created. Um, uh, if I had to guess, I would say that uh, they would probably have it set up to be either Yasmin or her sister. Yeah, if it had to be one of those two. And I mean, the way Yasmin's presented in this one, it does almost lead to me to question whether at some point, you know, somebody was considering, you know, the Black Widow as a character. Because, I mean, really, you know, when I say she's a substitute, I mean, it's pretty close in some regards to what the Black Widow would have been, you know, if you adapted it for television around that time. Ex-Russian agent, you know... It's something not so far-fetched as Thor or Daredevil, so I could easily see networks getting behind it. 
yeah, per se. And, and I did think that uh, that her um, that all of their like uh, uh, schemes, their their disguise schemes, uh, played out very well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're very simple and basic. And I mean, some of the stuff, I mean, the execution's occasionally a little laughable, um, such as Yasmin's, you know, let's stop at the dry cleaners and <laughs> swipe a uniform, uh, which is, uh, uh, I, I love the simplicity of that. You'd think government bases would probably have a bit tighter security on that sort of thing and not just let their uniforms go up to the dry cleaners. Um <laughs> But, hey, who am I? I didn't necessarily research this film. Uh, somebody may have. Um, or done the research for this film, I should say. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, but yeah, I mean, there is stuff that works in the film. I mean, the banner Yasmin romance is, it's nothing great, but it's, it's okay uh, for the most part. I mean, I love that, again, sort of, you know, I jokingly referenced the Joss Whedon uh romance that he brings up an age of Ultron between Banner and Black Widow there, but you know, it's surprisingly similar how even notions, you know, uh, the, the idea of Banner being considered a monster, and Yasmin being sort of, you know, feeling herself monstrous because of some of what she's done in the past, you know, I mean, it's a very similar scene, and probably a better scene than the one of Age of Ultron, because <laughs> it doesn't feature uh, you know, it doesn't make that link somehow between being, you know, unable to have children as somehow being monstrous. Um, yeah. Seriously, what were they thinking on that one? I really don't know. Um, so it, it, it's got that going for it. But I, I think the real crux to this film and what, what's going to make or break it for a lot of people is the conclusion uh, <laughs> of this <laughs> film. And I'm going to say it, it took me by surprise. But I, I want to hear your take on this first, just to... See what you think. Well, I mean, there. It's tough to say just because there's been so much and so much Hulk um, since this that I mean, just having him fall from a helicopter at uh, what maybe a, a thousand feet, if that. Yeah. Does not seem like something that that would even. Uh, barely uh, be a scratch to the Hulk, uh, yeah. Let alone kill him. Yeah, it, it really is kind of a, a peculiar death um, for the t uh, title character of your program. Particularly, you know, after I mean, even if you hadn't seen the show, I mean, Banner spent the, the preceding eighty-five minutes of screen time. <laughs> you know, talking about how dangerous, you know, the Hulk is to everyone and, you know, how he's this monster that has to be hidden and controlled. And not only that, but how quickly he can heal. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, yeah, they established that he's a pretty quick healer as well. Um, give Wolverine a run for his money. And yet, you know, you know, this drop onto a concrete with no visible signs of scarring or anything else. <laughs> um, you know, that's what kills him. And I mean, our final image is of Banner surrounded by, you know, it doesn't really matter uh, what he, relations he's established over the course of the film. They're ostensibly strangers to him. <laughs> uh, you know, and his final moments on Earth are spent surrounded by, you know, Yasmin, and if I remember correctly, the, you know, elderly scientist and his wife who were, you know, who felt like, you know, Banner was their son, despite the <laughs> fact that clearly you should, you know, that age thing's going to drive me up the wall. Yeah, um, they're like 10 years apart. Yeah, like, you know, if I had had a child at the age of 11, it would have been <laughs> you. Uh, thanks. Uh, 
family dynamics might be a little stranger than this, but okay. Um, so, especially considering that that Banner is the one that uh, uh, is more or less the smarter of the two because he's the one that kept keeps fixing his work. Oh yeah, I I also wanted to mention that that I got a, a sense of uh, goodwill hunting from the beginning as well. Yeah, there is a little bit of a, a goodwill hunting take to this, which. You know, to be fair, if you know uh, Bill Bixby had been about a good solid twenty-five years younger, um, that that might have worked a little bit better for this film's favor. Um, certainly made more sense of some of the character dynamics in this movie. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's hard not to look at. I mean, particularly given I, you know, we gave Bill uh, Bill Bixby quite a bit of credit for his work on the Trial of the Incredible Hulk, which he also directed. And, you know, that film, compared to the, to this one, is actually fairly stylish. Um, and I don't know whether it's just the fact that, I mean, because that was really much more of a Daredevil film, and Bixby may have felt he was establishing the status quo for presumably whatever would follow in terms of the TV show, whether he was putting a ton more effort into making it its own thing. But on this one, he honestly seems to be in autopilot directing. And I feel bad saying that because obviously, you know, it was all, it wasn't too long after this that he would eventually pass away. Uh, mm. for, I mean, first diagnosed with cancer and then uh, shortly pass away thereafter. Um, so on one hand, I, I really don't want to take him to task too much, but it, but it does really feel like a route by the numbers television episode. Um mm. Which, and, you know, I honestly don't, I mean, had there actually been a continuation, I don't think you're, I honestly don't see how there could have really been a better ending, given the type of show it was, yeah. than you're going to get here, unfortunately. Um, like, I mean, I, I'm sure if they were to do it in this day and age, there would probably be something more substantial and meatier to what the conclusion of Banner <laughs> storyline would be. At least I would hope so. Um, but... Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I, I guess, you know, you know, sort of to similar question. I mean, would you, do you feel compelled to seek out, uh, the rest of this program based on this less than sterling conclusion? Um, well, I mean, I, I've always been curious about the show in, in general and, and this, I would say that this doesn't fully turn me off, but it, it, it does lower my expectations a little bit and, and I do have to mention um, that I did watch this with with my eight year old daughter, and the entire time like, she is <laughs> already more sophisticated in in her uh, movie and, and television show watching, uh, especially as far as effects are concerned, because she just constantly said was saying, you know, that Hulk is ugly. <laughs> what? <laughs> Like this, this is so stupid. Why are we watching this? Uh, I, I'll take full blame for this. this. Uh. She's like, this movie was crap. The action, ch- the action was crap. The characters were crap. Yeah, yeah I, for anybody who's sort of grown up, you know, their expectations modeled, you know, on recent special effects and, and you know, higher budgeted productions. Yeah, this is not going to cut it. I mean. And I say this to somebody, you know, even when I was a kid, you know, when I did see episodes of the Incredible Hulk show, 
yeah, it, I always found them kind of tedious because, you know, you come to these things because you want to see, you know, the Hulk mm-hmm. and you want to see the Hulk do cool stuff. And, and again, the grand total of what of cool things you're going to see the Hulk do in this movie <laughs> is him smashing through walls in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, he, he does that. And then he has the scene where he bangs against the uh, the force fields for a little bit <laughs> and then gets uh, put to sleep. And yeah. then he gets the scene where he uh, kind of hangs, where he gets to puts his arm against the uh, the bulldozers for a little bit. <laughs> that was <laughs> just kind of hang it, out there. Yeah, even you know, I, I cut this film probably a lot of slack in terms of its effects, knowing the context. But even that, no, that bulldozer scene doesn't fly. <laughs> um, you know, just gently hold it, Lou. Don't don't actually do anything. Will injure you uh, because we don't can't afford the insurance. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, although I, I will say that, uh, I mean, I, I haven't seen any of this but uh, in a while, and, and I know that Lou Ferrigno is a big guy, but he is massive. Oh, yeah. I mean, credit where credit's due. I mean, he was a bulked-up individual at the time. I mean, even today. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's in better shape than I will ever hope to be in. Um, but, I mean, yeah. No, I, mean, like, he, I, I watched his, uh, his appearance on Celebrity Apprentice uh, a few years back. Um, and yeah, he's still huge. Yeah, I mean, he, he like I said, he he's good. Ca- I mean, I, I give the, the the film some credit. I mean, Lou Ferrigno does what he can with this role. Mm. Uh, and, and I think, unfortunately, uh, even though this is you know the grand finale, he is given the least to do in this film. Um, I mean, you look back on things like even you know one film prior to the tri- Trial of the Incredible Hulk. There are moments when Ferrigno is actually asked to do some you know decent facial emoting. Um, on his part, I mean, it's nothing spectacular, but he does a solid job when he when he's asked to do that sort of thing. Here, I mean, he really is just reduced to being the strong man who growls and screeches and doesn't really get any chance to show any more range than that. Um, yeah, pretty much the only thing he other the only other thing he gets to do is he gets to carry the doctor out uh, out of, from the fire. Yeah, Yasmin had already pulled him, uh, you know, five feet away from the fire. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's one of those things where, yeah, it's just a very weirdly and poorly staged sequence. Um, But yeah, I mean, his presence, and I mean, again, it's part and parcel of the old show. I mean, Lou Fregano, I think, would you could at best say maybe he would pop up for somewhere between five to ten minutes in any given episode. Um, You know, when it came time for the Hulk to finally show up and, you know gently pound a car uh, on the top of the fence in order in somehow that will beat the villain. I, again, <laughs> I'm really picking on the show and I feel bad. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, even, you know, you look at uh, even other superhero programs from the seventies at this time, I mean, they were doing things, I think far, you know, more spectacularly than the Hulk. I mean, say what you will about the wonder woman show, but my God, they were ambitious with some of what they were doing when you consider the context of what it comes out of. So, <laughs> But yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, overall, it, it was uh, interesting to look back uh, on on this uh, as a film. Um, I mean, I've my goal for my site is is to watch every superhero movie, uh, including the TV movie. So I was going to get around to this one sooner or later. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's interesting to see in context. But it's. It's really a bit of an anomaly. 
It's just kind of weird that it it feels like a 70s show, even though it was uh, made in 1990. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, I mean, it was sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of situation in the sense that, I mean, if you tried to update the aesthetic for 1990, you know, you're going to disassociate yourself with what people liked in the first place, but... You know, by doing no updating on that on that aesthetic or stylistic approach to it, you know, it's very much tying itself into a time and place that had long since passed by uh, by 1990. And certainly, as we've acknowledged here, I mean, you know, when you can turn to CBS and you know, John Wesley's ship is, you know, he's doing stuff, you know, <laughs> uh, in a pretty cool costume with an, a catchy theme song in, or a catchy theme. Uh, you know, this unfortunately just isn't going to cut it when you have your, you know, plain white title card showing up at the start of this thing. Like, I mean, you know, this is a film so utterly dull that, I mean, you know, we get the basic white on black text cards and then just general, you know, you know, probably a stock footage, you know, helicopter shot flying over, you know, forests mm. uh, in, in general. I mean, there's nothing really just to grab and hook you into this or get you excited. You know, this is going to be, you know, an adventure romp. Um, you know, I, even Generation X put a little bit more effort into it. <laughs> that's saying something, folks. <laughs> oh, Generation X. Oh. Yeah. So. That was interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of these days we'll get to that on our, the other show and... Yeah, I, I look, I look, look forward slash dread <laughs> revisiting it. Um, so at least that one has has a lot of talk, lot to talk about. Um, but yeah, I've, um, it, well, anyways, it, it was good to have you on. I, uh, I think we've been talking for quite a while about uh, about these two films. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to get the chance to talk to you. Like I said, I've been listening to, to 24 panels for a while here. Um, not quite the the five years that you've been running, but uh, uh, for the past year or so. Um, and uh, why don't you go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online? Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much once again for having me on. Uh, it was very fun to be here. Um, uh, also, you can find 24 panels at 24panelspersecond.com. Uh, that's for the main website. You can find me on Twitter as at 24panels. That's numbers 24 and then panels. Uh, you can also, if you want to visit the Cinema Chase website, that's www.cinemachase.net uh, for anybody who wants to hear us talk about things non-comic book related as well, uh, as well as find, you know, reviews and other uh, stuff there as well. So, uh, yeah, that's about where uh, where you can find us. All right, and as always, I am Bubba Wheat, and you can find me at flightstightsmovienights.com. You can also find me and several other writers covering superhero TV shows at channelsuperhero.com. And you can find FilmWise on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podomatic. Um and if you want to know what two films we'll be talking about on the next episode, go ahead and listen through to the end for the mashup trailer. Until next time. Here's what's going to happen. You'll find out what the word punished really means. You don't understand. No. You don't understand the questions that come with that, okay? Every time he kills somebody. It's on your head. Bleeding? So far, the only thing that I've got the show for. I mean, you've got the $400 billion, you've gone to charity rock, you have this perfect 100-room mansion with matching his and her yachts and helicopter pads. If he ever shows up within...